You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to The Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. I'm your host, Matthew Kroll. I'm the Academic Programs Manager here in the Department of Philosophy at Purdue. And we now have our third in this series of talks from PatFest, which was the celebration of the career of Dr. Patricia Kurd, who retired from our department this past spring. And as always, to help me introduce the speakers and the talks, in studio with me is postdoctoral research associate here in the Department of Philosophy at Purdue, Michael Augustine. Michael, thanks for coming back. As always... Happy to be here, Matthew. So the talk that we are releasing today was given by Dr. Alexander Nehamas, and this was on April 26th, 2019. So Michael, if you would please do the honors of introducing the speaker and the talk for us. All right, let's see if I can do this in one breath. <laughs> Alexander Nehamas is the Edmund N. Carpenter II class of 1943 professor of the humanities, professor of philosophy, and professor of comparative literature at Princeton University. And the Sorry. title of... Uh, of Alexander's talk at the conference was the Academy at Work Dialectic in Plato's Parmenides. So I thought this talk was awesome. It was fascinating. And I have to say, I got the sense here, and maybe it's just because uh, this is so far out of my wheelhouse, um, that I, I really thought watching uh, Dr. Neymas give this talk was watching a philosopher at work. It was really, really a, a, an interesting experience, and I was really happy to have been there. So if you don't mind, uh, let listeners in on what this talk was about. Sure. So this talk concerns Plato's Parmenides, a dialogue that comes after the Republic, which your listeners have already heard a little bit about, and is thought to mark a transition between two periods of Plato's thought. The middle period, which contains dialogues like the Phaedo, the Republic, the Symposium. Sort of the classic dialogues that I feel like everybody knows from, you know, an intro to philosophy class or if they're, you know, undergrads in philosophy, those sort of... Yeah, yeah, if you've taken an intro class, you probably read a little bit of The Republic, maybe some of the stuff from the Phaedo. Yeah, 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 yeah. And one of the things that's distinctive about this, this period of Plato's thought is that something that appears in the dialogues is Plato's grand metaphysical theory, what we often call the theory of forms okay. or the theory of ideas. The forms are divine, intelligible, eternal entities that are the natures uh, various characters or qualities that we find here in the sensible world. Okay. And that harkens back a little bit to some of the stuff Vanessa was talking about, correct? Because in that, in that talk, she was talking about the end of book five, where the sensible world was, um, yes, being yeah. discussed. Yeah. I mean, there, right, there was a contrast drawn between the lovers of sights and sounds who love the many beautiful things around us, but can't get at or don't appreciate or don't search for, however you want to put it, the thing that truly is beautiful. Uh, and what appears at a certain point in the dialogue is that, well, the thing that's truly beautiful is the form of the beautiful. It's the nature or essence of beauty. Nice. Awesome. So in these middle period dialogues, that's that metaphysical theory is being um, 
yet developed there as this yeah, theory of it's, forms. It's starting to emerge um, in Plato's uh, in Plato's writing. That's that's a little controversial. Some people think it's it comes up earlier, but sure. uh, for our purposes, let's just say it, it really starts to come on the scene in the middle period okay. dialogues. And then you're saying the Parmenides, though, is part of what's uh, typically classified or categorized as the later dialogues. Yeah, it, it marks a transition between this middle period and the late period. So then this talk that Dr. Nehemas gave focuses on a dialogue from what is categorized typically as the, the later period or the later dialogues of Plato, correct? That's right. We're we're making that transition from the middle period to the later period. Okay. And it's thought that the Parmenides marks that transition and then follows a series of dialogues on, on other interesting topics. Nice. So could you give us some background to the, the Parmenides, that dialogue itself, please? Sure. So we typically think of the dialogue as divided into two parts. The first part contains seemingly devastating criticisms of the theory of forms as it was presented in the Phaedo, the Republic, the Symposium, in Plato's middle period. Okay. But it doesn't just stop there. It goes on to offer a method of training that if someone engages in, they could find their way through those criticisms. Okay. And that method of training is demonstrated in the entirety of the dialogue second part. And I got to tell you, Matthew, it's uh, bewildering to say the least. It's the second part of the Parmenides. The, the second part of the Parmenides. It's 30 Stephanus pages. Which means? So the Stephanus pages, put generally, it's a standard way of referring to Plato's dialogues across all the editions. So when you open up a particular dialogue of Plato's, you're going to see little numbers in the margins, 427, 555, 163, whatever. Uh, and those are consistent across all editions of Plato's. It all refers to a master edition done by Stephanus. Nice. Awesome. Okay, so part two of the of the Parmenides, and you're saying, is 30 of these Stephanus pages, which is... It's three lengthy. times as long as the dialogue's first part. Okay. And it's 30 Stephanus pages of nearly unbroken argumentation. Wow. By my count, it's 196 arguments broken into eight sections that are arranged uh, in such a way that the conclusions arrived at in one section contradict the conclusions arrived at in the section with which it is paired. So okay. section two contradicts one, four, three, six, five, eight, seven. And if that wasn't enough fun for you, after section two, there's what we typically call an appendix. And there's a lot of uh, disagreement and debate in the scholarly literature about just what in the world is going on in the second part of this dialogue. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Nice. That's awesome. So then in terms of this talk, what was, uh, what was Dr. Nehemas uh, trying to do here in terms of how he was approaching the Parmenides? Sure. So Professor Nehemas was offering a new account of the metaphysical and linguistic objections in the first part of the dialogue, right? Again, where the theory of forms from the middle period is coming under scrutiny in order to better understand the nature of the argumentation in the second part. Uh, he suggests that the dialectic in the second part of the dialogue prepares the way for a radical new understanding of Plato's own theory of forms 
and may well be an instance of the actual dialectic practiced in the early years of Plato's Academy. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And again, I thought this was a great talk. Um, we hope you all enjoy it, and we'll be back with the fourth talk from the series of the Pat Fest Talks uh, in the future. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Um, I, I don't know how many of you um, remember Admiral Stockdale. Uh, uh, Admiral Stockdale was Ross Perot's running mate in the 1992 election, and his famous first words when he gave his first press conference is, you may well wonder, what am I doing here? <laughs> here I am, I'm Pat's teacher, and she's retiring. And they say, we should learn from our students. <laughs> and I plan to, Pat, I plan to learn from you as soon as I possibly can. In the meantime, however, I have this... Uh, what? No, you're not. <laughs> Baby. Um, I, I'm a bit af afraid of this paper. It really speaks to issues that Pat and I have been discussing since the early 70s, basically. Uh, it's a bit technical, but I'm told that many of you have heard Pat either in class or in various cafes around town saying things like being participates in being in respect to being while not being participates in not being with respect to not being. There'll be a lot of this in what's, <laughs> what's following <laughs> here. Anyway, so let me get started because it's a bit of a long paper. Uh, in, in a book called Plato's Earlier Dialectic, published over 50 years ago, Richard Robinson pointed out an important difference between uh, Plato's Socratic dialogues on the one hand and works like the Republic, the Fido, and their symposium on the other. The Socratic period, he wrote, gives prominence to method, but not to methodology, while the middle gives prominence to methodology, that's the Republic, but not to method. In other words, theories of method are more obvious in the middle, but examples of it are more obvious in the early. Now, by contrast, in Plato's late works, the Parmenides, the Sophists, the uh, uh, Philebus, the Politicus, we have both method and methodology. We have plenty of both. Uh, but the better of both worlds, which is what we have, is not good enough. We are still very far from understanding the, either the method or the methodology of Plato's late works. And in order to reconsider his dialectic, his way of going about uh, doing philosophy, I think it's first necessary to establish clearly exactly what problems pr Plato was trying to address with this new, if it is in fact a new method. Uh, for the logical and metaphysical questions that Plato concerned, uh, that, uh, that concerned Plato in his late works are, I believe, also the questions that occupied much of the work of the academy for, uh, uh, as a whole at the time. So what I'm arguing is that the Parmenides is actually a piece of advertising for Plato's academy, if you want to see it that way. I believe that the second part of this very difficult dialogue on which, in fact, Pat, uh, Pat wrote her dissertation uh, a long time ago. <laughs> well, you're retiring, it is a long time ago. Uh, uh, provides a detailed instance of the kind of dialectical training, the, word, the Greek word is gymnasia, that Socrates or anyone else needs in order to overcome the very serious difficulties that Parmenides raises against Socrates' own views in the dialogue's first part. It is my hypothesis that this exercise belongs to the educational program of the academy, but it is, as Parmenides makes perfectly clear, uh, a very small part of the training that one needs. 
Uh, Socrates, he says, needs to, uh, he must follow the same procedure for all the things that Socrates' theory, the theory of forms, postulates. It's only after Socrates has gone through the full course that Espamenides said he will, he will finally clearly see the truth. So where could Socrates engage in this dialectical training that Parmenides is showing him in the dialogue? Well, the most likely answer seems to me is precisely you had to go through the process uh, in the academy, which was founded sometime in the middle of the 380s BC, uh, considerably before the Parmenides was actually composed. So the Parmenides is actually sort of it's both an advertisement and saying that's the kind of thing that we are doing already, I think. Now, Plato presents the dialectic of which he gives a sample as a response to various problems facing the grand metaphysical picture that he himself had produced up until that point in his work, uh, problems that he presents in the dialogue's opening pages. To understand his method, therefore, we must first have a clear idea of the substantive issues their theory faces. Only then can we say something definite about the nature of the method that seems to have been designed in order to avoid the difficulties raised there. And only then will we be able to discern the new metaphysical picture that comes to replace the theory to which Socrates appeals in order to uh, refute the Eleatic view, the view of Parmenides and Zeno with which a dialogue starts, namely that all is one. It's a famous Eleatic view, all is one, and Zeno is trying to argue for it, and Socrates comes and says, oh, it's all wrong, I'll tell you why it's wrong. Then Parmenides says, I think it's all wrong. No, you are all wrong. Here's what you need to do if you want to get it right. That is the structure of this dialogue, basically. <clears throat> so, getting such an idea is the main burden of this paper, um, although I can offer no more than a very preliminary sketch of it here. I depend in what I'm going to say to you uh, now on three basic considerations. First, that this is the only detailed account of dialectic offered in Plato's late works. Second, that the method must be practiced extensively, not just once or twice, but for a long, long time. And finally, that the net effect of such dialectical training explains several features of the metaphysical and linguistic views and prepares a ground for the various collections and divisions, as Plato calls them, that we find in later works like the Sophist and the Politics. And the Politics, right. So let's set the scene first. There's a fictional meeting between uh, uh, Parmenides, Zeno, his student, Socrates, and a variety of other people, a fictional meeting, where Zeno recites a work of his containing, if Proclus's commentary is right, 40 logoi, that is, 40 arguments, against the hypothesis that beings are many. That is really what you see in uh, one in the handout. But what exactly does this hypothesis mean? To answer the question, we must examine the one such logos that Socrates, the one argument that Socrates explicitly mentions, that is, in one. If beings are many, if beings were many, they would have to be both like and unlike, but that is impossible, therefore beings are not many. That's all we have, and we need to make sense of that. Socrates immediately counters that this, like all the other arguments uh, Zeno presents in that treatise, which we don't know, applies only to those things that he says, those things that in fact we call many. 
That's his expression. I'll come back to try to explain what that means. Zeno has shown merely that if such things, and by the things that we call many, he means sensible objects, everything that we see around us, if those things are many, then there must be both like and unlike. But the real issue, Socrates says, is whether intelligible objects, that is, the forms, the natures of the things that we see around us here, and as he continues to describe them, I quote, in which I and you and the other things we call many participate, if those things can themselves be both like and unlike, both one and many, and so on. That, he says, uh, uh, he can't, they can't do. And that is the second uh, piece in your handout. Don't you think that there's a form of similarity? I'll come back to that in a way, but I'll read it again itself by itself, and to such a thing again, something contrary, that which is dissimilar, and in these two, I and you and the others that we call many participate. So once he gives this reply to Zeno, Parmenides now mounts a series of objections against Socrates' view, giving him a taste of his own uh, dialectical and apparatic medicine. It's one of the few times when Socrates is completely stumped. Usually he's only stumping everyone else, and they hate him for it here. He is stumped by Parmenides, who treats him very, very kindly, actually. Uh, he still thinks, however, that some version of what Socrates believes must be right. He thinks there must be fixed things in the world if knowledge and dialectic have to have an object as they do. And he says to Socrates, you are very young, uh, you need to exercise, you need to train yourself, you need to train yourself in dialectic before you can free your views from the problems that uh, they face. And so he first, Parmenides describes the method in general, and then for the largest part of the dialogue, he gives us an exhaustive and exhausting account of it that has made generations of people either fall asleep or despair or stop doing philosophy or killing themselves. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's really not an easy piece to read. Nothing about this text is easy to understand, not even the very hypothesis that Zeno disputes. That hypothesis, which is number three, beings are many, is usually interpreted in the following way. It's usually taken to mean there are many things and appears to contradict the view that we most often attribute to the Eleatics, to Parmenides, Zeno, and Melissus, the philosophers who came from Elea in the south of, uh, of Italy, uh, namely that the numerical thesis that there is only one thing. That's the view that is usually attributed to them. Not by everybody, not by Pat and me, but almost everybody else. Uh, we are the shiny exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> so on this very well-entrenched interpretation of Eleatic monism, the variegated world we see around us is nothing but a deceptive illusion. There's only one thing in the world, but we see many. So those things that were many, that are many, those many things that we see are all illusory. They're not there because really there's only one this big thing full of everything or something like that. And so I begin by disputing that interpretation. So imagine three things, Socrates, his student Simeus, and his other student Phaedo. Socrates, according to this view then, would be both like and unlike. Why? Because, according to this view, he may be like Simeus because he is shorter than Simeus, and unlike Phaedo, no, sorry, he is like Simeus because both are short, and unlike Phaedo, because Phaedo is tall. So Socrates, there are three things. Socrates is like Simeus and unlike Phaedo. But is that 
really what Socrates actually disputes. He claims that any sensible object, there's no problem with sensible objects, they can participate in two opposite forms at the same time. Nothing prevents them from being both like and unlike. He says that very clearly. But what these objects are like and unlike, he says, are not other distinct objects, the same way that, the way that Socrates was like Simeas and unlike Phaedo. He says they're like themselves, rather sensible objects that participate in both likeness and unlikeness, he says, are like and unlike themselves. He makes that absolutely clear. And there's nothing in saying Socrates is like Plato, like Phaedo, and unlike Simeas, or whatever it was, that makes Socrates like and unlike himself. And we need to explain why Socrates thinks that is the issue. If Socrates takes Zeno to think, to mean that plurality somehow makes things both like and unlike themselves, then he's attributing to him an inference uh, that really does lead to a contradiction, not the much more innocuous claim that we generally attribute to him. This emerges clearly when Socrates says that no paradox is involved in his own, in his own being, both one of the seven people present in the discussion and also many in that he has many parts. The apparent paradox applies to Socrates himself. He is himself both one and many, and not in relation to anything else. That's the example he gives. He says, I am both like myself and unlike myself. Not I'm like one thing and unlike another. In short, Socrates takes Zeno to charge that plurality make things, makes things both like and unlike themselves. But why would Zeno ever say that? On what possible grounds? And to see why, we must return to the hypothesis that he, Zeno, rejects. That hypothesis is, as number four here um, is, uh, uh, says, beings are many. The things that are, are many. There are, <laughs> the things that are, are many. Let me leave it like that. The Greek is ambiguous. It can mean either there are many things, that is the numerical pluralism, so to speak. There are many things, like many of us in this very room. Or it can mean things or beings are many things, which I will uh, discuss in detail as I go along, which as a first approximation we can understand as each being is many things. Each being, each thing is many things. And that is what Zeno is really finding peculiar and strange. In other words, he is not concerned with the number of things or beings that are called here, there are. He is thinking about the number of things, also beings, the Greek has no particular word to distinguish here, that each of the things there are is. In other words, he's, con he's concerned with how many beings each being is. Is it one or is it many? If it's one, it's okay. If it's many, it's a problem. He's not concerned, in other words, with the multiplicity of the sensible world, but what I would call its manifoldness. The multiplicity of each sensible object, rather than the multiplicity of objects themselves. He is rejecting the idea, as we, but not as I will say the Greeks would have put it, that every sensible object has many features or properties. That's what the Eleatics are denying. They're denying that a thing can have more than one feature. 
But why would the Eleatics consider that something that seems so perfectly obvious to us is a problem that is devastating to the ontological and metaphysical status of the sensible world? And why did the vast majority of the Greek philosophers who came after them take the Eleatics position so seriously until Plato's late dialogues and Aristotle's writing on logic, metaphysics, and uh, uh, physics. Why is it that they have this immense influence if what they're saying sounds as absurd as it does? Well, so before I turn to that, let me add that this uh, pattern, I call it kind interpretation, rather than a strict or uh, unkind <laughs> numerical interpretation of elaticism, is corroborated by the way Socrates draws a contrast between sensible objects on the one hand and the intelligible forms on the other. He asks Zeno whether he thinks that there is such a thing as the form of likeness itself by itself, I quoted that before, and something else opposite to it, that which is unlike, in which I and you and the other things we call many participate. Now, what exactly does it mean to say the things that we in fact call many? Just about everyone who has written on this issue understands many as a technical platonic term, referring collectively to sensible objects. Uh, in other words, there is the one form and there are the many things that participate in the form on the other hand. Okay? So there are forms and many. Each form is one, but each form can be participated in by many objects. Accordingly, Socrates' expression is translated, the things we call many, the things to which we give the name many, and we refer to them collectively as many, which is in line with taking beings are many to mean that there are many things. Socrates, Simeas, tall, red things, and so on and so forth. The things, in other words, we call the many. We just saw, however, that this can't explain why Socrates takes Zeno to have argued that those things are both like and unlike themselves. Moreover, the intelligible forms that Socrates introduces in answer to Zeno are themselves numerically many. <laughs> there are countless forms. Nobody ever says, ha, ha, why, why aren't your forms uh, as much of a problem that way? Well, they do now, but yeah, no. Uh, he makes it perfectly plain that there are quite few of them, likeness, unlikeness, one, many, and a whole host of others. If so, why does Socrates think that the plurality of forms doesn't fall foul of Zeno's strictures? And why is he never criticized on its account? The answer he gives is that no form can bear the feature denoted by its opposite. So the form of tallness can never be short, as he puts it, or for that matter, any other of the forms. Because the forms, he says, don't mix and separate. In other words, each form is exactly what it is and nothing else. And it can't be qualified by any of the other forms at all. But this can only be so if no form, in contrast to sensible objects, can possess as we again would put it, more than one feature or property. If no form can, in Greek terms, be more than one thing or more than one being. If it can be something other, that is, than what it is itself essentially or naturally is. And that is precisely, I think, what according to Socrates distinguishes the intelligible domain of the forms on the one hand from the sensible domain of their participants on the other. Both are numerically many. There are many forms, there are many sensible particulars. 
But that is not a problem. The problem is that only sensibles and not forms are manifold in the way that I was describing before. It is the unity of forms which sensibles lack that is supposed to protect them from the problems that Zeno raises against uh, pluralism. And it's precisely because forms are uni unified in that sense that they don't get the problems that the sensibles do. So consonant with this approach that I've tried to sketch, we can now understand the phrase I and you and the other things we call many in a different and I think philosophically much more satisfactory manner. That is, we can take it to mean I and you and the other things we call many things. Okay, I and you and the other things to which we attribute many features. That's what he's talking about, but the Greeks don't have a word for feature at this point. And the point I'm trying to make is that we are in the process of seeing the notion of a feature, of a property, uh, enunciated for the first time in this very work here. So the work many here applies directly not to Socrates, Zeno, and the others as a collective name, they are the many, but rather it applies to their features instead as a placeholder for the predicates they have. But neither Zeno nor Socrates can use the word predicate or property or feature. The distinction between subject and predicate, substance and property, uh, or substance and feature, is just what is missing from the logic and metaphysics of early Greek philosophy and from Plato's middle theory of forms. What is missing, in other words, is the very notion of predication, the operation that allows us today allows us, all of us, today, without a second thought, to attribute several properties of many, many sorts to a single subject without endangering its unity. So I am tall, I'm male, I'm Greek, I'm a lecturer, I'm Pat's teacher, and so on and so forth. That doesn't say anything bad about my ontological status. I mean, it did if you're a primitive Greek, but I am not. <laughs> I'm a 20th century Greek. And it is my view that at this time, the Academy, as we see it in Plato's late works, is engaged in introducing for the first time that very notion, a notion we take today so completely for granted that it is difficult for us to imagine that there was a time when it was not available and that a whole lot of philosophical labor, extraordinarily philosophical labor, was required in order to articulate it. The Parmenides is where that labor truly begins. Zeno, therefore, doesn't deny the existence of the objects of everyday experience. He doesn't say the world is an illusion. What he disputes is their reality. What they are like, in other words, bears no connection to the nature of what the world really is. And we will, as Parmenides and the Eleatics generally argued, be deeply misled if we use the sensible as a guide to the real. Plato's approach confirms Parmenides' immense influence on classical Greek philosophy. The middle theory of forms, the, form, the theory we know from the symposium, the Phaedo and the Republic, the famous theory of forms, uh, concedes that whatever is real must meet all the, what Parmenides calls, signposts of what it is to be in his poem, which was so influential on Greek thought. Uh, like Parmenides being itself, the forms are ungenerable, imperishable, integral, immobile, continuous, and perfectly and completely whatever they are at all times. If we take Parmenides to have argued that there is only one real thing, 
Plato would simply be begging the question against him, since he simply asserts and never once actually gives an argument to the effect that there are many forms. But is that what Parmenides had argued? That's what we've taken him to argue. But to take him to argue that makes havoc, I think, of the history of early Greek philosophy. My own view is that Parmenides' approach on whether being, what it means to say that being is one, which he says, was ambiguous. That is suggested, perhaps paradoxically, by the fact that Melissus, his other great student other than Zeno, spends all his philosophical capital trying to argue that, in fact, there is only one thing. <laughs> you don't try to argue that if it's already there in your teacher's state, uh, sort of uh, poem. Right? And he also argues viciously, or viciously, but passionately, that it's material, which again is something that Parmenides simply doesn't make clear. What he had in mind, we will never know what Parmenides had in mind. What we do know, however, is that almost every one of his successors in early Greek philosophy accepts every single one of his conditions of reality. I, I mentioned ungenerable, imperishable, fully and completely, and so on including its unity, but also, like Plato, everybody assumes that there are many real things. Empedocles, four elements. Anaxagoras, homomerae. Uh, the atomists, atoms. Everyone has many things. And nobody says, oh, wait, Parmenides said there's only one. How can I have many? Nobody needs to argue about it, which suggests to me that Parmenides isn't taken to have said there's only one thing. So reality, even for Parmenides' successors, and in my interpretation for Parmenides uh, himself, was irreducibly plural. plural. Uh, plural, yes, but in every other respect, unlike the, decep the deceptive, as Parmenides calls it, sensible world. But unlike Parmenides, for whom the sensible bears absolutely no relation to reality, Plato was unwilling to acknowledge such an unbridgeable gap between the two, and postulates that a particular relationship that it calls, he calls, of course, participation, obtains between them. As such, participation grounds the reality or the nature of sensible objects in the forms. It gives them a measure of reality and is an attempt to explain why their manifoldness isn't a problem. In other words, I'm suggesting that instead of the picture that we have of Plato who looks down on the sensible world and looks up to reality, uh, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's trying to ground the reality of the sensible world in this other reality. He's not looking down on the sensible world. He's trying to bring it up, if you want, against the contempt, so to speak, that the Eleatics had expressed against it. According to Plato, the very fact that we can call Socrates many things, we can call him like and unlike, one many, snub-nosed and, and virtues, shows that, strictly speaking, Socrates is not, strictly speaking, either like or unlike one or many snub-nodes or virtues. In other words, for Plato, to participate in something is a second-best way of being something. It's, you can't quite be, so instead of being short or tall or large or just, you participate in justice or shortness or tallness or what have you. To participate in something is not to be that something, but to be like it. Only likeness itself, the form, is like. Only the one itself, the form of unity, is one. And only virtue itself is virtuous and never its opposite.
that Simeus is taller than Socrates, we read in the Phaedo, when he says Simeus is taller than Socrates, he says that is not, in fact, as we say in words, because it is not in Simeus's nature to be taller in, vir in virtue of being Simeus, but only in virtue of the tallness he happens to have. Simeus merely participates in tallness, and nothing prevents, we are told there, an object from participating in various forms, even if those forms themselves are incompatible with one another, and when the, their opposite appear, appears, they depart, or if they're not exactly forms, they die. So, why does Plato insist that it is impossible for the like itself to be unlike, or for the one itself to be many? Why, in fact, that is this an thesis that is considerably stronger than that? Because if my interpretation of the things we call many is correct, the contrast between forms and sensibles implies that the forms can't be called many. That is, that each form can only be one thing. That's what Socrates is driving at. That, in our terms, it only has one feature, namely the feature that specifies its very nature. But that implies that no form can be qualified by another, or qualify another. And that, I believe, is what Socrates has in mind when he challenges Zeno and Parmenides to show not just that the like can be unlike, or the one many, he does try to get them to show that, but also that the forms in general are incapable of mixing with and separating from one another. He generalizes, he starts out by saying, well, only the like can be unlike, only the one, the one can only be one. And then he says, but none of the forms can mix and separate. So he wants to show them, he wants to be shown that they would have to do that. Part of his reason, which I have actually tried to explain elsewhere, and I won't go through it here, but I will mention it a bit, is the following. Early and classical Greek thought operated with an extraordinarily a restrictive notion of what it is to be something. Lacking the notion of predication, as I was just saying, it had serious trouble understanding a sentence like, and now I've come to five, uh, like comedies is beautiful, because it took every sentence of the form X is F to be equivalent to X is what it is to be F. In other words, is for a Greek. So when a Greek at that point use is, they take the is to specify the nature or the essence of whatever it is they're talking about. To assert that is that F, when you say X is F, F is the nature of X. So if you say Simeus is tall, you expect the tallness to be Simeus's nature. And yet Simeas is not told because of his nature, we're told, but because he participates in tallness. So, Carmides is beautiful, could not assert that Carmides is characterized by beauty, that would be a predicative understanding which they don't have, but rather that Carmides is what it is to be beautiful. So, I'm not saying that the Greeks didn't use language using predication. I'm saying they don't have a theory of what predication is. That's when the problems come in. So, when you say that comedy is beautiful, you're actually saying comedy is the very nature of beauty. But comedy, who is a beautiful man, is also, as we know from the hippias, ugly when compared to a god. Yet given this understanding of is, comedy is ugly, seems to assert what? That comedy is what it is to be ugly, right? But comedy, therefore, if those statements are true, would be both what it is to be beautiful, 
and would also be what it is to be ugly. Since by hypothesis, comedy is, is what it is to be beautiful, it follows on this argument, and that's the argument I have here, that what it is to be beautiful is what it is to be ugly, because comedy is, is both, according to this understanding. <coughs> um, so that, of course, that what it is, well, that beauty is ugliness, is precisely what is impossible. If you generalize this statement, which Greek does without variables because they don't have variables, you yield the thesis from what is beautiful is not beautiful. You get the thesis what is is not. That, too, is a genuine contradiction and flouts directly Parmenides' famous fundamental principle from which all his uh, theory follows, namely, as he puts it in his poem, that never shall this be proved that what is not is. And yet, that is what Plato is trying to prove in all his late works without entering into a contradiction, without falling into a contradiction. The only thing that is, strictly speaking, beautiful is nothing other than beauty itself. Beauty is beautiful. Justice is just. Tallness is tall. Those notorious self-predications in which Plato delights are puzzling, but in my opinion, only superficially so. Of course, justice can be just in the sense that people and perhaps actions are just, but there's nothing wrong with saying that justice, namely, as Plato defines it, doing your own, is what it is to be just. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. And not only is doing your own uh, not unjust, it, is anything, it isn't anything else either. For if it were anything else, we'd face the same contradiction. If you wanted to say that justice is not only just, but it's also one, then since justice is just means justice is what it is to be just, and justice is one means justice is what it is to be one, then what it is to be just turns out what, to be, what it is to be one, and that's a contradiction, because what it is to be just is not what it is to be one, and what is not is said to be. So you can see how the, the, uh, the argument form that Parmenides has provided really gets you into very serious trouble if you can't disarm it. So, as I said, participation in Plato's middle works is an alternative to being an imperfect second-best way of approximating it. To participate in the one, to be what we would call one thing today, is not to be strictly speaking or perfectly one. Though it makes sense, uh, sorry, it makes some sense to claim, some sort of claim to being called one and so to a second-rate uh, uh, reality. The middle theory of forms then, paradoxically, in my opinion, is the last pre-Socratic theory in Greek philosophy because it accepts all the Parmenidean strictures and is much closer to Anaxagoras and Empedocles and uh, the atomists than it is to the Parmenides, or not to Parmenides, to the, to the dialogue Parmenides. Now, okay, Socrates, in other words, limits manifoldness to sensibles and insists that Zeno can't show that manifoldness applies to the forms themselves. Well, of course, perhaps Zeno can't, but Parmenides certainly can and proceeds to do so with a vengeance. Taking over the discussion, he establishes that Socrates' grasp of his own theory is so tenuous that he's not even sure of what things have forms and what things don't. He then considers four different ways of understanding that relation, the relation of participation that I mentioned to you before, between sensibles and forms, 
and shows that however it has been understood, so far at least in Plato's works, participation is incompatible with the form's unity. He actually says the same problems that appear to, that, uh, that appeal to sensibles, that um, uh, uh, um, uh, confront sensibles, also confront the forms. He finally concludes by arguing that no connection between forms and sensibles can be established, and therefore that we can't even know what they are. So the idea is the relationship that Socrates and Plato have postulated between uh, sensible objects and forms doesn't work. It gets the same problems for both the domains. I said that Parmenides rejects four models of participation, and not everyone would agree. At least some commentators think that the second and third of Parmenides' arguments, uh, especially the second, to which I will now turn, is not directed at participation, <coughs> but uh, at the unity, rather, but at the singleness of the forms. In other words, they see it as, again, I trying to show that Parmenides shows there are many forms of each thing, just as there, there are many things uh, in the sensible world, which I said is exactly what's not happening. Um, I don't want to go too much detail into this argument because, you know, it's one, it's, it's a complicated one. But I suspect still, I suspect that the reason for this interpretation is that ever since Gregory Vlastos brought this passage to the attention of contemporary philosophers, we have failed to see that, the, that this argument too depends on a particular version of participation. It, people have not noticed that, and that's what I'd like to point out to you now. Instead, it has seemed that the argument depends only on what is called the one over many principle. That is, we've taken Parmenides to argue that if there is one form of tallness, uh, which is common to the many tall things there are that participates in it, then the argument will go. Necessarily, a second form of tallness will emerge, and then by the same argument, a third and a fourth, and finally you have an infinity of forms, um, and you have an infinite regress that doesn't allow you even to begin to understand how the bottom form does its work. I will not go through an alternative interpretation of the argument, uh, but I will try just to tell you how I read it. There is a very important intermediate step that we don't pay attention to when we come to this argument. I'm now on six here. First to begin, the first premise is, I suppose that you think that each form is one, says Parmenides to Socrates, from a consideration of such a sort. When it seems to you that many things are tall, perhaps there seems to be one idea, is the word that's used here, one idea, the same upon them as you look at them, whence you take it that the tall, that is the form, is one. This extra step, perhaps there seems to you to be one idea, the same upon them all as you look at them, has been consistently ignored as if it wasn't there. When you read reconstructions of the argument, it just doesn't, doesn't appear at all. It doesn't function. Although I think it makes a serious difference. It is from the presence of that single idea, not simply from the simple presence of the many things, <coughs> that Parmenides infirms that the form is itself one. And it is again to this idea that he returns when he goes on to generate the next form in his argument. That's 6.2. What then, if you look in the same way within your soul at the tall itself, that's the form, and the other tall things, won't there appear some other single tall thing, I put that on purpose, in which all these, in virtue of all these appear tall? What is this other tall thing? Is that a form or not? 
It has generally been assumed that it is, and I'm denying it. I'm denying that it is. At first, it seems reasonable to say that it is, but a second look can change your mind. First, because the word T, something, some, another tall thing, as I, as I uh, uh, translate it here. First, because the word T, something, which qualifies tall, is generally used to refer not to forms, but to the sensible instances. That is, in fact, exactly the function of ata uh, when you see many, certain many things in the first premise, exactly the way that the sensible objects have been referred to to begin with. Second, because this other tall thing is something that will appear, it appears, finitai, and finitai is the uh, vocabulary that is being used consistently here, when, like the idea of the previous steps, one sees it, sees the new thing of tall things that includes both those original tall things and the forms, uh, the form together, then you see them all, and then another idea appears, and then from that idea, you infer that there is a second form. Finally, because there is an inference from the appearance of this other tall thing to what is clearly a form. Uh, therefore, another form of tallness will appear. We're told that very, very clearly. That form, in turn, is the second and not the third form the argument generates, since we are told that in addition to the single tallness and its participants, it comes to be. And that form, like the next, is something that makes things Beetle. So the idea makes things appear tall, the form makes things beetle. There's a real difference there. And so on. Finally, so finally we have now in three, another form of tallness will therefore be revealed, having come to be in addition to tallness itself and its participants, and over those all yet another in virtue of which they will all be tall, and no longer will each of your forms be one but indefinite in number. Notice the expression. The way Plato states his conclusion shows that the purpose was not, as has been argued, I'm quoting somebody, to prove that the theory is logically bankrupt because it involves an epistemologically endless regress. This, what we have here, is not a regress. Uh, Socrates, if players prevent, not saying that there'll be infinitely many forms. He says, each of your forms will be indefinitely many. In other words, it's once again the unity of the forms that is being criticized, not their multiplicity. The regress the argument generates is not itself the problem. The problem is something the indefinite number of forms of tallness generates in turn. Because if there are indefinitely many forms of tallness, and each one, as this argument shows, participates in every other one that comes after it in the regress, it follows that each one of these many forms will itself be infinitely many things as well. It will be qualified by every other form that follows it. Forms and participants, in other words, turn out to be on a par. If to participate in a form is to have that form's particular look, that idea, that form itself, which presumably also has that look, turns out to be a participant in another form. And like all participants, it will both be one and many. Each stage of the argument, in other words, generates a single form, and each such form is not really, that is, not only one, but also many. Now, what is that look, that idea, or character that all things share, and that is the same in all of them? I think Plato has an answer to the question. The character that is common to all tall things is what in the Phaedo 
he calls the tallness in us as opposed to the tallness in nature. Sometimes we call that an immanent character and it plays a very serious function in Plato's Phaedo. Um, it appears in the Parmenides as well because Parmenides says to Socrates, have you yourself distinguished similarity itself from the similarity we possess? And Socrates says, yes, yes, that's my idea. So we have that notion that we saw in the Phaedo appear in the Parmenides. And most interestingly for me, we find it somewhere where I least expected to find it. We find it in one of Plato's earliest dialogues, the Euthyphro, when Plato, uh, Socrates is trying to get Euthyphro to explain to him what piety is, and, uh, uh, the, and the Euthyphro uh, gives him uh, uh, a, 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 the, a, an account that he doesn't like, and he, reply, and he asks, is the pious not the same and alike in every action? This is Socrates. And the impious the opposite of all that is pious and like itself? And everything that is to be impious presents us with one form or appearance, idea, insofar as it is impious. <laughs> so the notion of the idea comes in from the very early uh, platonic works all the way into the third, the so-called, badly so-called thir third man argument in the Parmenides, which is what the argument I've been discussing. So Parmenides' primary target is the view that to participate in a form is to be qualified by such an idea. The argument, therefore, locates a problem for the unity of forms that is generated by the particular conception of participation that is being uh, uh, employed. Plato is quite clearly posing difficulties for both unity and participation in tandem. And one way to respond to the argument, if it is a good one, is to deny that to participate in a form is to have a certain look, right? Is to say, let's not deal with idea. Let's throw that idea away. Let's find another way to understand participation. And so they try now another model and another model, and they all keep failing. But is the argument a good one? It might seem that, on my account of being in participation, it can't be. The form of tallness, and only the form of tallness, is strictly speaking tall. That is, what it is to be tall, and not a tall thing. By contrast, tall things are simply called tall, but are not really so. Forms and the participants, therefore, are what we say they are in very different ways. Tallness and only tallness is what it is to be tall, while tall, sensible things are not what it is to be tall, but only appear to be so. They participate. Because to participate in tallness is simply to appear to be tall, where in fact you're not. And if forms and their participants are not tall in the same way, it seems illegitimate to place them in one group so that you can say, well, take the tall things and take tallness and then put them in one group and see another tallness. But if they're tall in different senses, in different ways, then how can you do it? That's a problem for my interpretation. Now, armed with a categorical distinction between the forms, which are what we say they are, and sensible objects, which only participate in them, one could stop the regress. For that would imply that participation in tallness is a different but perfectly legitimate way of being tall. But the middle theory of forms takes being as what it is to be and participation not as a categorically different way of being, but as a second best 
way of being. It's an inferior way of being. Tall things are tall in the sense of being imitations. And Plato, of course, uses that vocabulary consistently, imperfect versions of what it is to be tall. Now, the imperfection of the sensible world was a central feature of this stage of Plato's development. And that imperfection consists precisely in its not being strictly, but only imperfectly, what we say it is. The sensible world for Plato is not imperfect because it includes only inferior versions of tallness or equality, but because it bears such versions, accurate as they may be, imperfectly. In other words, uh, the way I put that sometimes when I teach it is when we say Socrates is, Socrates is tall, the traditional view exemplified by, by Gregory Vlas's view would be to say Socrates is Not really. I say, no, no, it's not like that at all. It's like this. That's the difference, as I see it. OK, let me get back to this, because I'm running out of space and time both, as you said. <laughs> now, let me find where I was. So if Plato thinks that the difference between forms and participants is a matter of degree rather than of kind, a matter of inferiority rather than categorical difference, it is legitimate to group forms and participants together, as we might, for example, place both greater and lesser paintings on a sing in a single class and ask what makes them all paintings in the first place. Quality, perfection has nothing to do with it. Plato's theory is therefore vulnerable to this argument and subject to the internal contradiction that it generates. If each form can only be by being what it is to be that thing, what we say it is, each form can only be one and only one thing. And that paradoxically implies that's what the argument of the rest of the argument of the dialogue shows, that no form, including the one itself, can ever be one. <laughs> this, if, if the form is only one thing, then it can't be anything. That's what the argument shows. By contrast, it also shows that if the form can be more than one thing, then it's everything. And that is the dil dilemma that Plato finds himself caught in at this point in his dialectical development. Either the forms are nothing or they're everything, but that won't do because they need to be what they are if they're going to play the role that they need to play in his, uh, in his uh, uh, system. So in order to, def to, ref to diffuse the argument, Plato needs to show that each form can be one thing without being nothing, and many things without being everything. And in order to show that, he also needs to show that participation, the relation that allows us to call each thing by many names, is not an inferior way of being, but an alternative, a different way of being, which applies to every object that participates in every other. In other words, you're not putting something down any longer by saying it participates. <laughs> that's, that's the real issue. If participation, then, is not imperfection, nothing in principle present, prevents it from applying not only to sensible, but also to forms, because it's no longer a sign that, uh, any, that what you're saying is an imperfect object. The dialectic of the dialogue's second part shows <coughs> that if each form can be called nothing but that which it really is, the one is only one, many are only many, and so on. 
absolutely nothing, not even what it really is, can be truly said of it. If the one is only one, Parmenides shows that it can't even be one. That is the lesson of two of the, or however you count, of two of the four hypotheses of which the second part of the dialogue consists. <clears throat> the other two, by contrast, allow the one to participate in another form and then claim that if two things can be said of a form, everything else can be said of it as well. What Plato seems to need there, need then, is an understanding of being and participation that allows the forms to bear more than one name, name being the only semantic term that the Greeks are using at this time, in addition to the name that refers to their nature, and yet protects them from bearing every possible name as a result. That, along with the fact that Parmenides seems to think that it is impossible for any form to be nothing at all, which rejects the conclusion of the first hypothesis, suggests something that I think people have not really thought about very much, that Plato doesn't accept, at least not straightforwardly, all the conclusions reached in the second part of the Parmenides, which a number of people actually hold, that, that the second part actually resolves all the issues and we have no more work to do. I don't agree with that. I think that uh, the argument is much more complex than that. The dialectical exercise is preparatory to the solution of the problems encountered in the theory of forms. The activity Parmenides demonstrates is to be repeated in connection with every single form in order to map its relations to every other. True, the right distinction between being and participation makes it possible to see, say, why if the one is only one, it neither rests nor moves. For since what it is to be one is neither what it is to move nor what it is to rest, the one, strictly speaking, is neither resting nor moving. And Parmenides asserts that in the second part. But it can't be true that if the one participates in other forms, if, for example, it participates in being and is therefore a thing that is, though not being itself, not what it is to be, it both rests and moves, as Parmenides also argues. What must be shown is that something that really is can participate in other things without, on that account, having to participate in everything and therefore losing whatever unity it had in the first place. But exactly in which forms a particular form participates and in which it doesn't, that is, what features each particular form has in addition to its own nature, cannot possibly be established a priori. It requires a detailed examination of each and every form. And that examination constitutes the very training that the Parmenides requires of Socrates, as Parmenides says, and that the Academy, as I believe, was likely to offer its members. The instance of the exercise the dialogue provides contains both true and false statements about the forms. How then could that uh, training help? Well, to begin with, we mustn't assume that the exercise will in general proceed as it does in this dialogue, where the respondent, the very young and inexperienced Aristotle, not the philosopher we're told, but Gilbert Ryle, being a sharp Axonian, said, you know, Plato must have chosen the name on purpose. He says, this guy will answer any question the way I want to. He's young and experienced. That's exactly what Aristotle was not, right? I mean, we can make sure that he wasn't the guy who took an answer for given ever, right? So Ryle says, whether it's the same or not, the name is chosen uh, on purpose by Plato. I think he's absolutely right about that. Uh, so uh, Parmenides, in fact, wants him 
this Aristotle to be his interlocutor because, as he says, he is the youngest among them and will give him the fewest problems and will answer him with what he really believes. <laughs> Which, of course, is what Socrates always wanted from his, uh, from his uh, interlocutors. But now what we have is a, very, is a sort of a turn of that phrase in an interesting way. Aristotle is even more a passive respondent than Mino's slave, as a matter of fact. He answers Parmenides' questions just as Parmenides wants him to, never disputing any of his presuppositions and never asking him to clarify anything. Parmenides comes up with those absurd statements, you know, things that it, it, you, know, you, you have no idea how to understand. And the guy says, of course. <laughs> By contrast, an active respondent would have had to decide how to answer each question on its own merits, sometimes positively, sometimes not. And so also to decide how the different forms that are addressed at different times, in different exercises rather, are related both to themselves and to all the rest. Had Aristotle already had some of the training Parmenides illustrates here, he would have said, for example, that the form of being is, in the sense that it is what it is to be, also in the sense that it is a thing that is, it is real, right? Which means that it participates in itself. But it is not a thing that moves. Since no form is a moving thing, and so it participates in rest, and therefore doesn't participate in motion. Moreover, such a student would know that non, not even motion itself participates in motion, because motion doesn't move, even though motion moves in the sense that it, it is to be, it is what it is to move. So we have those seemingly paradoxical statements that we now know how to uh, sort of pass in, in, way to, in a way to avoid the uh, paradox. It's by going through various, these various relations of connection and exclusion that the academy students would gradually come to know which forms do and which don't communicate with each. For example, being is both being and different. If these apparently true statements were explicated only with a strong is, we would have to conclude, contrary to fact, that being and the different are the same, since being would be both what it is to be and what it is to be different. But if, as in the sophist, we distinguish between this is and the is that corresponds to participation, then being would in fact be what it is to be, and it would also participate in the different, which is exactly what, of course, the sophist tells us. We could then say that being is different without worrying that that would make being the same thing as the different, nor, since the two are patently not the same, two distinct things. I mean, being itself, two distinct things. The overall task would be to map the relationships of the forms, or the forms bear to one another overall, to determine which forms are in harmony with which and which are not. Completing that task, never thinking that one form is the same as a different one, nor that two distinct forms are one, you may recognize the passage, comes from the sophist, is nothing other than being a dialectician, a genuine philosopher. It is in the sophist that we find a summary discussion of the precise interrelations of five among, of the, among the greatest kinds. And it is in the sophist that Plato, having shown, and I quote him, that in its nature, being neither rests nor moves, proceeds to dispel that seeming paradox by explaining precisely, I quote, in what way we call in each case the same thing by many names. 
the, uh, sophist, the central part of the sophist starts out negatively, says we don't understand what either not being or being is. Philosophers have confused us about it. And when it comes to the positive part, says, okay, let's now try to explain how we call each thing by many names. That is the positive task of the sophist. And now it's no longer a serious problem. It's only children and the famous or infamous or unknown late learners, people who came late to learning, are still, still think of this as a problem. No serious person does anymore. It's a very problem that, of course, Socrates had presented as the most serious philosophical problem uh, that uh, the, uh, the theory could face. The Parmenides shows that implacable paradox follows if only this strong is applies to forms, or alternatively, if the is of participation breaks down their unity. It does not disarm the paradox. The paradox is resolved only when it becomes clear that everything sensible and intelligible must be called by many names, and we understand both being and participation in a way that doesn't destroy the unity of the forms, uh, either by saying there can be nothing or by saying there, can be, there must be everything. The dialogue doesn't show what particular name each form, names each form can bear, not even in connection with its own sample form. It sets out the kinds of questioning that with a proper interlocutor can lead to the knowledge involved. But the proper understanding is reserved for the sophist, which takes the right view of being and participation to which that questioning uh, could lead for granted. It's as if the training has been finished by the time we come to the sophist. The Parmenides shows the very first step that questioning must take, the sophist, what the questioning has led to. Between the two dialogues, if we think about their, uh, not about the chronology, but about their intellectual positions they occupy, stands the full training of the academy through the Parmenides, which the academy, rather, through the Parmenides, promised to impart to its students. That, at least given the almost total absence of direct evidence of the academy's practice, we know nothing about what happened. So this is really speculative, uh, but it's the only speculation I know of. Uh, so since we have no direct evidence, seems to me the most plausible hypothesis at our disposal, that that's what they were doing there when they were doing dialectic. Back in the 1950s, when uh, Gregory Vlastos and Gwilym Owen made Plato accessible to contemporary philosophers and interesting and relevant, they did it in a very strategically clever way. They did it by arguing that, their prob that his problems in particular, but they did for Aristotle too, that Plato's problems were the same as ours. Blastos in particular thought that although Plato had a perfectly clear conception of predication, and understood the logical form of a sentence like Socrates is told. In fact, in a paper of his, he says uh, Plato understands Socrates is tall as Socrates epsilon class of tall things, right? That you know, he even had set theory in there uh, uh, in his mind. His, so Vlasos begins, look, how could Plato not understand that? My view is that it took more than a century for people to understand that. Right? So he thought that Plato had a clear conception of predication and understood the, f the form of sentences like Socrates is tall, but wrongly believed that tallness is tall has the same form. And said, how could tallness be tall? You know, how could justice be just? Justice is an abstract entity. How could it possibly be just? In other words, Blasters credited Plato with the right question. 
but found at least part of his answer wrong, perhaps even simple-minded. In other words, he said he understands predication, but he thinks that for the predicate term, to, to mean something, it has to refer to an entity, and that's bad, you see, because Frege taught us that this is not necessary, something like that. I prefer to reverse the order. I think that in his middle works, uh, Plato, like all the philosophers had preceded him, could not explain how it is possible for one thing to be many or for one thing to have many names without paradox. What he didn't understand precisely was predication. His problem was not with tallness's tall, but with Socrates's tall, and human, and brave, and male. In the Phaedo, he says, if anything is beautiful other than the beautiful itself, then it's beautiful only because it participates in the beautiful. What's taken for granted is beauty is beautiful. The problem is Socrates is beautiful. For Vlastos and for all of us for many, many years, it has been the other way around. And that, I think, is a very grave error. In short, I think that Plato's question was other than ours, perhaps more naive, perhaps even primitive, at least an ancestor of our own question. His first answer, the middle theory of forms, involved denying Parmenides' view that things with many names are deceptive appearances totally unrelated to the nature of reality. But the relation he established between those two domains, namely participation, implied that everything other than the forms had at best an imperfect way of kind of being. His final answer was to abandon the idea that participation was a second-rate way of being and therefore inapplicable to the forms. Instead, he deployed it as we deploy the notion of predication that allowed not only sensible objects but the forms as well to possess many features without a risk to their reality. The answer Plato therefore gave to his primitive question was nothing short of absolutely brilliant. So brilliant, in fact, that we have taken it completely for granted and think of it as part and parcel of our common sense and not as a philosophical accomplishment of the first order. The discovery of predication required not only the individual effort of an extraordinary mind, that of Plato, but also the complex structure and the systematic method, that is, the dialectic of the extraordinary institution we have come to know, or rather not to know, as Plato's Academy. Thank you very much. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Turity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.